If you want to make your way to the 18th chapter of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, uh, we're going to be picking up there as we continue our journey uh, through Acts. And as you make your way that direction, you that where we were last week in chapter 17, is we saw Paul giving this uh, wonderful address, this very uh, wise and thoughtful address on the uh, Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. And as he gave this speech, which has been studied uh, in uh, Bible seminaries and by theologians for years, it was deemed by many to be the most perfect message Paul could have addressed. He touched on things uh, with a culture. He hit things right down the middle as it relates to the law. And he explained who the person was of Jesus. Um, and yet it was uh, received with mixed results. And so we see is very mixed results. In fact, what we're told at the end of chapter 17 is uh, some mocked. Uh, others said, we'd like to hear more about this later. Come back tomorrow. And, and some believed. And so one of the interesting things as we see is Paul uh, hit on all these topics that he hit on is that he did not mention uh, Jesus by name, not one time in that message, and he did not mention the cross. And so no mention of Jesus uh, no mention of the cross at the end of chapter 17, and, and hence there was no church planted in Athens by the Apostle Paul. And so he leaves out of this place uh, with no church planted, uh, very probably uh, uh, disappointed with what he thought was the perfect message. And so in Corinth, where we're going to pick up on the story today, and what we looked at at the end of last Sunday services, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, what Paul said as he left Athens, no doubt disappointed in the lack of a reception, as he says in 1 Corinthians 2, I determined to not know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That from now on, I'll hit on things culturally if it applies, but I am not going to not mention the name of Jesus this point going forward. And so as he arrives in Corinth, this is what he is determined in his heart to do. He's going to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's where we arrive in chapter 18, verse 1. Now after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, precisely as we just talked about in the introduction. And so Paul has left Athens. He makes his way to Corinth, which is known in the ancient world as a tremendous city in terms of trade. And so because of its position along the Aegean Sea and on the other side of Corinth is the Iconium Sea, what we find is that many sailors would, instead of sailing around Achaia, they would actually stop in Corinth. And as they would stop with their ships in Corinth, because there was no canal like what there actually is to this day, it was a very dangerous route to go around the southern border of Achaia, they would actually take their ships and they would load them up and slaves would carry from one side approximately three miles to the other side and deposit them in the Iconia Sea. And so that while they were doing this, needless to say, this was not a, uh, a short process. This would take a few days. And what we know about uh, sailors in particular is that while the cat's away, the mice will play. They had themselves a very good time in Corinth, did these sailors. So much so that it became known as the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. It was a place where you could literally let it all hang out, and that's precisely what was happening when Paul arrives there in Corinth. It was also known because it had, on the top of the hill overlooking the city, it had the temple to Aphrodite. And so to go along with what we're talking about with these sailors, uh, every evening what would take place 
is a thousand temple priestesses would come down into the city of Corinth, and they were, in fact, temple prostitutes. And so all kinds of debauchery was taking place uh, in Corinth as uh, Paul arrives there. And it was known as a city to be so loose morally and so much drunkenness that in the ancient world, if you were a person of ill repute and you uh, were a drunkard, they would say about you, you are such a Corinthian. And so there you have a little bit of background on what was taking place. Now, uh, it shouldn't surprise us as Paul writes Romans chapter 1, and as he writes that, a debased mentality of mankind, he writes this letter from Corinth. <laughs> He's overlooking exactly what's taking place with these uh, Corinthians as he writes the letter to the Romans. Now, verse 2, And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the Caesar at the time, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. And so Aquila and Priscilla are our next characters that are introduced to us, and they have been extradited from Rome. And what we know, historically speaking, if you're a history buff, is that Caesar Claudius actually gave a command in 49 AD that all the Jews should be kicked out of Rome. There was a tremendous surge of anti-Semitism that was happening in the Roman Empire. And so he ejects all the Jews out of Rome, and so Aquila and Priscilla are among those Jews that get kicked out of their city. And so in verse 3 we see, as we continue, so because he was of the same trade, speaking of Paul, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And so the apostle Paul had a background in tent making, and so did Aquila and Priscilla, and they were able to work alongside each other. Uh, which reminds me of a story I heard a few weeks ago. It was about a man that was struggling uh, mentally and emotionally, and so he went to uh, the psychiatrist, and he was explaining what was going on in his struggles. And, and he said, you know, doctor, here's the thing. At night, I have uh, these dreams, and uh, one night I dream uh, that I'm a wigwam. And so the doctor, you know, writes it down, you're a wigwam, okay. And he said, and then the, the thing is, the next night I have a dream that I'm a teepee. So, oh, that's fascinating. I, I, I think I know what's going on with you. Oh, thank you, doctor, so much. I appreciate it. What, what is it? What's the diagnosis? And he said, well, it's obvious. You're too tense. <laughs> You're too tense. Uh, Paul was a tent maker. There you go. You can connect the dots, you see? So here's Paul. He's a tent maker, and he's working alongside Aquila and Priscilla, these uh, these Jews that are steeped in Judaism. And the thing is, he gets the opportunity to work alongside them. The reason I wanted to stop for just a second is to explain that your uh, occupation is often your ordination. Now, if we just pause right there, many of you will instantly in your mind say, wait a minute, I've not been ordained or called into ministry. And I would say, hang on just a second. If you consider yourself a believer in Jesus, you are in fact in ministry. It might not look like this, but wherever you're called to be in, your occupation is the place you are, in fact, ordained into ministry. You have a select group of people that you are put into contact with that I don't have access to, nor do most pastors. You have an opportunity to minister to them. That is your 
ordination. And what we know about working alongside people is there is a bond that happens when you work alongside someone. When you sweat with them, when you uh, toy with them, when you just interact, there's this brotherhood, this commonality that happens in a job or on a team. You know that to be true, and so it forms this special connection, and it gives an opportunity to actually share the gospel. Now, if you're not someone that feels comfortable with sharing verbally, uh, that's okay. Because many times the gospel is best shared through our actions. That the best testimony I ever heard was the one I saw. That we can show through our actions or through the things that we do not do or do not partake in or the way we handle situations differently than the world would handle them. This becomes a way that we can actually share the gospel of Christ. How is it you're able to handle what the boss just gave us so effortlessly? Effort, never mind. How are you to handle it without so much effort? Can't get it out today. Tang-tungled. But needless to say, it gives us an opportunity to interact with those around us. Now, verse 4. And he reasoned every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And so as Paul is able to work alongside Aquila and Priscilla, no doubt sharing with them the gospel through his actions and through his words, they too become believers. And Paul, doing what he does every time he goes to a new city, he goes into the synagogue because the Jews have the very oracles of Scripture. They have our Old Testament in their hands. And he shares with them the foundational aspects of the Messiah. He's laying the groundwork there that Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And so he's no doubt explaining to them the fulfillment of the law in the person of Christ. Now, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So here, Paul is now welcoming Paul and or Silas and Timothy, his two travel companions, two of his best friends. And it was at this point, as these guys enter into the synagogue, that Paul begins to testify that Jesus is the Christ. I think that's interesting because uh, it leads us to believe that up to this point, Paul had not been so completely straightforward. He hadn't out and out said Jesus is the Christ until his friends showed up. And this is a scriptural, and this is also, you know this to be true well, that it's easier to share about Jesus when you've got a friend alongside you. When you've got a like-minded believer that comes alongside you, it's amazing the way it emboldens us, it empowers us, it gives us courage and strength to be able to share about Christ when we've got another believer there. And what I love is that the Apostle Paul was even that way. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. He wrote half our New Testament. And yet it was hard as he was sharing the, the work and the person of Christ to say to them directly, Jesus is the Christ, until his friends come along. And I think that is one of the reasons why the Lord in Luke chapter 10 sent the disciples out two by two so that they would have courage, so that they would have a travel companion, someone to say, brother, go for it. I've got your back. I want you to, to preach, speak the name of Jesus. Do it with authority. You've got this to encourage and so this is what happens with when Silas and Timothy come in. Now, verse 6. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean, for now I will go to the Gentiles. 
And so they did not want to listen to what the Apostle Paul said. And his reaction was, look, uh, the blood be upon your own heads. I've shared with you the truth about Scripture. I have unveiled Jesus in our Old Testament. Want to listen. And so his reaction was to shake off his garment and say, your blood be upon your own heads. Understand that our responsibility in this relationship is to share the truth of the gospel, not to force people to believe. That many times uh, what folks will do is they will reject what you say, but understand they are not rejecting you. It feels like that. It feels like you're personally being attacked and rejected. The truth is they're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the perfect Messiah, God in the flesh. And the things that folks cannot stand about him are he is, he is poor in spirit. He is others first, turning the cheek, free from sin. All these things point to our flaws that we don't really want to face. And so Jesus is who they reject, not us. And what Paul responds with is, your blood be on your own heads. Now, in the Old Testament, there are two different phrases you'll see. Uh, in part, you'll see, uh, there's no blood on my hands. This is referring to uh, Jesus, or the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, wanting to encourage Ezekiel to go out and share what the Lord has put on his heart. And he says, Ezekiel, you're going to go to a wicked people. You're going to share to them all the ways that they're going to be judged if they don't turn it around. And here's the thing. If you don't share with them, it's going to be on your hands. But if you do, you will have no blood on your hands. Instead, the blood will be upon their heads. And so a, a second reference is in Joshua chapter 2. In this spot, the spies have been sent out by Joshua to go into Jericho. This is before the walls come tumbling down. They're called to go there into this wicked city. And as they're there, they're received by Rahab the prostitute. She's the only one that notices their Jews and is willing to actually take them in. And she believes in the Lord. And what she asks of them is, when you come and take over the city, this double-walled, massive city, would you please just save my family? That's what she requests. And so the two spies say, as long as your family remain in your house, they will be saved. But if any of them leave the house, their, bloods, their blood will be upon their own heads. That they will actually pass judgment upon themselves. And the thing is, and to tie this all back together, um, we don't need God to judge us. The reality is we judge ourselves by our own actions, our own decisions. We make decisions on our own. We are the ones actually passing judgment upon ourselves. And that feels really heavy. It feels especially heavy for these Jews. They have rejected the truth that Jesus is the Christ is going to come upon them. And so one last spot to turn on this topic, Romans chapter 11, thinking about the, the, the power, the love of Christ, the grace of of our Heavenly Father. This is what Paul writes to the Romans in regard to the judgment upon the Jewish people. He says, And I say then, had they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What Paul is saying is that they have rejected the truth with a capital T. But God hasn't done that to knock them down and stomp them into the ground. But instead, he's allowed the word to go to the Gentiles so that the Jews could be stirred up to jealousy. What is it to be jealous? It's to want something back that was previously yours. 
they would be stirred up seeing salvation come to the Gentiles and go, man, I want that. I want that in my life. And so verse 12, now in their fall is riches for the world. Their failure, riches for the Gentiles. How much more their fullness? This is the never-ending love of God. He so loves these people that have rejected him that he is going to bring this all back around. He is actually going to use this to drive them to jealousy so that he can actually fulfill all the promises in the Old Testament of the people of Israel. This is how much God loves us. I share that to say, if you think you're too far gone, I've done too much, I've rejected too much light, the reality is God's love and grace is never ending. He will go to all lengths possible to chase us down and bring us back, even driving us to jealousy. Now, speaking of jealousy, verse 7, and he, Paul, departed from the synagogue. He's been driven out from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who was a Greek, and one called to worship God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. You've got to love this. So Paul gets kicked out of the synagogue, driven out by the rulers there, and of all the places he could go in Corinth, he goes right next door <laughs> to, the, to the Greek guy that lived next door. And now all of a sudden, next door to the synagogue, there's a tremendous revival happening. People are coming to know Jesus. There's a worship and healing and all the things that went along with Paul's ministry is happening literally right next door to the synagogue. And then the worst part is people are joyful. Ugh, stinking joy. I hate those joyful people. Isn't that how it feels with us sometimes? When we see folks that are so joyful because they've gotten a little bit of Jesus in them. When we've lost our way or we've feeling mentally, oh, the joyful people. I can't take it. That's what's going on now for these Jews. They're being driven to the point of jealousy as they see what's happening at Justice's house. Then verse 8, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all, with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. These people gathered there in the synagogue. They were so moved by what was going on next door that even the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, can't deny the power of God. What I see going on has to be God at work. And so Paul now has this church in Corinth beginning to come together, and you think everything is going just the way Paul would have mapped it out, right? His ministry is at an all-time high. Now verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision and said, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. Why, when his ministry was at an all-time high, would the Lord tell him, Paul, don't be afraid? The reason was because he was afraid. He had a tremendous amount of anxiety. Fear was building up in him. Why? It looks like the ministry is going so well because Paul knows what's happened in his past, in his track record. Up to this point, he's been jailed, feet been left naked in the prison. He's been beaten. He's been stoned, possibly to death. And this is why things are going good. This is what causes Paul a tremendous amount of anxiety because what he knows is that oftentimes a spiritual gain comes at the hands of physical pain. This even plays out. This is maybe the most unpopular part of the entire message, so don't worry. But oftentimes this is true in our lives. 
that physical pain is actually where we have the most spiritual gain. We press into Christ. We look for Jesus as our Savior when we're in the midst of the storm. When did the disciples cry out for God to save them? But when the boat was going this way and that, Jesus, save us. This is the spot we find ourselves in. And Paul knew this. He's seeing tremendous amount of spiritual gain, and he's thinking at some point, this is going to be some pain for me. And so what I love here is in verse 10, the Lord gives him uh, two different uh, gifts to calm his fears. First of all, he gives him his promise, and secondly, he gives him his presence. At the beginning of verse 10, he says, For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. He says, Paul, I'm going to give you a promise. And the promise is, I am with you. That if you go through your Bible, do you realize 3,000 promises that are directed from God to each and every one of us? 3,000 promises or more are right there in the Scriptures for us to take hold of. These are things God said, I will do for you. I promise not, not swearing upon you because you flip-flop and you know, go whichever way the wind goes, but I'm promising these things on me, on my word. I'm going to promise these things to you. But the question, at least I have, you guys are probably more holy than me, uh, I have this question, what if I'm not hearing you correctly? What, what if I'm not even in a good enough spot to even be able to read or even be able to accept your promises? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, there was such a guy his name was King Ahaz. He, uh, he was a wicked king, a king of northern Israel, the ten tribes that went off to the north, and he did not believe the word of the Lord. He wouldn't listen, in fact, at all to what God had to say. When God said, I'm going to uh, break the yoke of bondage that these countries have put upon you, all you have to do, Ahaz, is ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign that this is true, and I'll give it to you. And Ahaz didn't even have enough faith to ask for a sign. He says, I'm not even going to ask for a sign. I don't believe it. So in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this is what the Lord says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want to ask for, we're going to give you a sign instead, Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. One of the most famous verses, one of the most famous promises in all the Old Testament. The virgin shall give birth to a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, our God, with us. Even when we struggle to believe a sign, do you understand the signs are always there? He is always present. God in the flesh poured out for you and I on our behalf. This is what Isaiah promises even wicked Ahaz. That means if it's good enough for Ahaz, it's good enough for each and every one of us. God is with us. This is what he's saying to Paul. I'm with you, Paul. I'm going to be right there alongside you. The issue is, do we trust him? Do I trust him? I was thinking about this last week. We had a, uh, a swim meet up in Danville. And the roads weren't as bad as what they are now, but there was a little bit of ice and the weather wasn't perfect. And as I'm driving from our house right around the corner on up to Danville for this swim meet at the YMCA, um, never one single time did my kids ask me, Dad, do you know where you're going? Dad, are you sure you know how to get there? Are you sure you know the way? Now, Google, Google did the way to the YMCA in Danville, but they never even questioned it. 
They didn't say, Dad, are you driving the speed limit? Hey, Dad, be careful around this turn. It looks a little dangerous. They never one single time asked me. And then I wonder, how many times do I ask my father that? Dad, are you sure you know the way? Are you sure this is the right direction? Are you sure you don't need me to drive? I'm happy to take a hold of the wheel. Imagine how poorly this trip would have gone if one of them would have come up from the back and just jerked the steering wheel to the right. I think this is the right way. But how many times do I do that to God? Do I try to crawl up in the front seat and I grab a hold of the wheel and I jerk a hold? And then I'm amazed when it becomes a complete disaster. The matter is one of trust. It's not if the promises are true or not. It's do I believe them or not? Am I willing to put my trust in him or not? Because what God's saying, the same thing here to Paul, the same thing he's saying to us, even to evil Ahaz, is that I promise I'm going to be with you. Now he doesn't leave him there just with this promise. He gives him a second gift at the end of verse 10. This is what the Lord tells him in the vision. He says, for I have many people in this city. Not only am I going to be with you, but I have many people. I'm promising you my presence as well. Oh, how many times does the enemy want to convince us that we're all alone? Isn't that amazing? He wants to convince us that we're the only ones in this spot. For the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, he had this tremendous victory, called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal were all burnt up. Tremendous victory. And then he got a threat from evil Jezebel. She said, I'm coming after you, Elijah. And he took off running like a little girl, scared to death. This must have been one mean woman, by the way. She was scary. He took off, and he hid himself there in a cave. And what the Lord does is he goes to Elijah there in a cave, and he says, Elijah, what are you doing? And he cries out to him, Lord, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one of your prophets that will speak your name. And now this mean woman Jezebel's after me. This is the Brock Ashley version, by the way. B-A-B. If you're looking for it, it's a newer translation. Elijah's crying out, Lord, I'm the only one. And God says, Elijah, there are 7,000 prophets of mine that have not bent the knee to Baal. You are not the only one. Satan has convinced you you're the only one. The thing is true for us. We get terrified when we get put in that spot. I don't know if I can share here. I don't know if I can speak out there. I feel like I'm all alone. I must be the only one. But just like what God is telling Paul right here, right now, I have many people in this city. This city is sinful, Lord. This city is so wicked. But what Paul writes in Romans is where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Paul, you have no idea. I have many people here. And so the Lord, as he promised to Elijah, promises here there is always a remnant. Do you understand no matter how bad the world gets, there is always a remnant a faithful remnant that the Lord leaves. Praise God for the faithful remnant. Now, verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. How do we know if Paul actually believed the word the Lord gave to him? He stayed. He stuck it out. And not just for a day or two, but for 18 months, 
he stayed and he continued to teach people out of the word of God. Stability comes when we study and we listen to God's word. It brings a balance to our lives, uh, an anchor for our souls. There is stability in God's word. And Paul simply just taught the Bible. Isn't that amazing? No fog machine or light show. There was nothing necessary other than God's word being taught. That's not to say I wouldn't take a fog machine at some point. I think I'd look pretty awesome coming out. Some, just joking. I don't need a fog machine. But the thing is, simply teaching the word of God. That's what Paul was doing. Now, verse 12, when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. So they, they have this new governor over this entire region of Achaia, and they want to press charges against Paul, saying that this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. And so these Jews want to bring charges up against Paul. They've got a new guy in charge, and so they bring him in front of Galileo. And before Paul can even open his mouth, he's going to defend himself, but instead uh, what God does is he defends him first. Paul's been down this road a few times. He's been thrown in enough jails. He's thinking, I've got to defend myself, but remember the promise God already gave him. Paul, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to hurt you. Even this guy, Galileo, who you don't even know yet, he stands up for the Apostle Paul and dismisses the case. And so he dismisses uh, the case for Paul. And then in verse 17, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And so Galileo took no notice of these things. And so this guy that brought up the charges against Paul, they now take him, and instead of beating Paul, they beat this guy right in front of the judgment seat. I mean, what a turn of events. Boy, speaking of what a turn of events, as Galileo is beaten due to his lack of belief, I want to turn with you to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. This is probably flyover territory if you read the epistle to the Corinthians, but I think it's important to point out. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. As Paul addresses the Corinthians in his letter, after he mentions the name of the Lord, who's the next person he mentions? Uh, Sosthenes. This same guy that was beaten in front of the judgment seat of Galileo ends up becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That sometimes, this is a truth, sometimes people have to endure in order to be saved eternally. A physical beating might be necessary. Physical sets of circumstances might be necessary in order for us, because we are so hard-headed oftentimes that we cannot come to Christ any other way than to endure a beating. He will not force us into a decision. He's too much of a gentleman but God will sometimes limit our options. <laughs> this is coming from a guy who wound up in Farmington, Missouri, hours away from anybody he knew and loved and led his family into certain financial ruin had God not pulled us out of it. You see, sometimes God has to break us 
in order to save us. Now Paul has a decision to make. He could have stepped in while Sosthenes is being beaten there at the judgment seat, but he didn't. And I think oftentimes we have to understand this when it comes to helping people is that we can inadvertently become the fix for the fix. That what God's actually trying to do in someone's life to get their attention, to turn them back to Jesus, that we can get in the way of what he is up to in their life because we think we're helping. This requires a tremendous amount of prayer, by the way. Because if we're not careful, we become jaded and we never want to help anybody ever again. That's not at all what I'm saying. Each of you, you probably have someone in mind, as I mentioned that, that you have tried to help and you have tried to step in and yet things never seem to change. And what I'm encouraging you to do is spend a lot more time in prayer for them because we are not the fix for the fix. God is way more concerned with their eternal destination than their physical position. So praise God for the Sosthenes of the New Testament. Now verse 15, So Paul still remained a good while, and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Centria. Uh, I think I did it right. For he had taken a vow. And so the Apostle Paul, it appears, had actually taken what is known in the Old Testament as a Nazarite vow. He took a vow, and the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, there's a few famous people like Samson, you might remember. He was born uh, being told by God to take the Nazarite vow, and there were three things that the Lord said, uh, don't do. One, uh, don't cut your hair. Uh, two, do not drink wine or have anything to do with grapes. Don't even eat that grape salad that somebody brought to the Super Bowl party. Don't do it. And, and thirdly, do not touch any dead bodies. And so these were the three things that were a part of the Nazarite vow. People could take them for life, or they could even take them for just a short period of days, 60 days. Either way, it was something to, to give to the Lord by taking a Nazarite vow. But isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, freed by Jesus Christ, took a Nazarite vow, an Old Testament Jewish tradition. I wonder why would he do that? Why would he take this vow Except we looked at this a few weeks back, 1 Corinthians 9.22, where Paul says, I will become all things for all people, so by all means, some might be. Paul loved his brethren so much that he would even take a Jewish vow, a tradition, to be able to just have common connection with them, to build relationship with his brothers. It, and this was something he could do for the Lord, not because the Lord required it or demanded it, but because he wanted to. And I think oftentimes we get so hung up on tradition in church, especially a non-denominational church. We've been so steeped in tradition in our upbringing that we can actually become traditional in being non-traditional. I think it's important to point out that tradition was never the issue. It's the heart. The heart position is the problem that there are many of these traditions that have tremendous uh, background and, and, and foundations in Jesus, in the Lord, that we can become so non-traditional, we'll just throw them all out. You see, the point is always the heart. The heart is the heart of the matter. And so for Paul, this was something he got to do to the Lord, something he could freely give to Jesus, and precisely what he does. He goes and, and performs this Nazarite vow. Now, verse 19 and he came to Ephesus, 
And he left them there, speaking of Paul and Silas, or Silas and Timothy. He left them there, excuse me, of Aquila and Priscilla. He left them in Ephesus, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when, he asked, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast to Jerusalem, but I will return to you, uh, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And so Paul, leaving Corinth, he goes to Ephesus, and he's headed on his way to Jerusalem. And these uh, Jews there in the synagogue, they love Paul's teaching. He was already having a tremendous impact. He couldn't help himself. Even on a pit stop, he had to go teach the Word of God. And so he goes into Ephesus, and their cry was, would you just stay with us a little while longer? And I love his response, if God wills it. If it's the will of God, I'll come back. And wouldn't you know it, it becomes the will of God. Paul spends two years later on in Ephesus. And so he leaves from there, and he heads up to Jerusalem, and we get very little information other than he goes to Jerusalem, performs whatever rituals were along with this Nazarite vow, gives a good wave to the church he greets, and he heads back to Antioch. I think it's important to note that the Apostle Paul and the early church didn't always hang out together, that birds of a feather often flock together, and it doesn't mean that either side was wrong but that oftentimes uh, we won't always see eye to eye on things, and that's okay. Paul goes back to people that he can relate to. He goes back to Antioch, and he makes his way back there in verse 23. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. And so he hits these churches he planted on his first missionary journey and encourages them. And now, verse 24, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. So Paul leaves this area, and now a Jewish man from Alexandria, the second largest city in the Roman Empire. One-third of this city was made up of Jews there in Alexandria at the time, known for its incredible intellect and its great libraries. And this is the place where Apollos was from, and he's down to Ephesus. And in verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so Apollos had been a follower of John the Baptist, and yet he only had the teaching of John the Baptist. And John's message was, repent, for the Messiah is coming. And so Apollos had this much knowledge, and he went into Ephesus, and he taught passionately about the knowledge and the information that he had, that you need to repent, for the Messiah is coming. Now in verse 26, And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so Aquila and Priscilla are sitting there in the crowd, and they hear Apollos give this passionate speak about repentance, and the Messiah is coming. But isn't it interesting they didn't interrupt him in the middle of his speech? Hey, hey, Apollos, hey, don't you know Jesus has already come? Just want to point that out to you. I'll be happy to explain it to everybody. No, instead, they handled it very graciously. They went to him privately, and they said, look, you did a tremendous job presenting the Word of God, but let me show you some further truths. There's some things you're missing. The Apostle Paul is 
taught us, and there, there's additional information. They went to him privately. And I love that because they went to him graciously, and Apollos received it graciously. I mean, this guy was no doubt a, a fantastic public speaker. And he could have at any point in time said, don't you guys know who I am? I'm Apollos from Alexandria. Haven't you read Acts chapter 18? I mean, I'm a big deal. Don't you know that? But he didn't point that out whatsoever. Instead, receiving the word graciously, in verse 27, he shares the word graciously. And when he had desired to cross to Achaia, and the, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. He had received grace. He then was able to teach through grace. He was able to teach in such a way. In verse 28, For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He received this new revelation that Jesus is the Messiah that he had been teaching about. And he was able to then turn and teach others what he had learned. I think that's important to point out. Because what Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, verse 18 he says, therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. That what we are responsible for, does every one of us understand every single truth in Scripture? Certainly not. There's too much there for any of us. But what we are responsible for is what we have heard. Take heed how you hear. Take heed of the way you have received the truth of Jesus Christ. For Apollos, he hadn't heard that Jesus was the Messiah until Aquila and Priscilla had explained it to him. And so up to that point in time, he was sharing as fervently as he knew how. And God didn't condemn him for that. We are not responsible for the things that we have yet to understand. What we are responsible for is the words that we have heard the words that the Lord has spoken to us, the message that he has shared with us. And so as he has taught these things, he then turns and teaches this simple truth that Jesus is the Christ. He is now on a mission to go everywhere to share that he is the Christ, or in Hebrew, he is the Mashiach, the anointed one. He has been anointed on our behalf. And in the Old Testament, only three different Groups of people get anointed, uh, kings, prophets, and priests. And only one man had held all three titles, and that is Jesus, the Christ. Anointed with the, the oil poured over his head, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, poured over his head because he is king, he is priest, and he is prophet. All three right there in one. And as you think about that, And think about him being the anointed one. One last place in Scripture I want to turn to as we wrap up. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27. Speaking of anointing, Isaiah says, It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. That the promise that Apollos was sharing is that the yoke of burden around their necks was to be broken. Broken by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. The anointing oil was the thing that was poured over the heads of those who believed to break the yoke of bondage. 
What Apollos was teaching on, what the teaching of Jesus as the Christ teaches us is that he is the one that can break the yoke of bondage. So if you're in here today and you have a yoke of bondage upon you, praise the Lord, he is the anointed one. He is the one who can break it. He is the one that can free us from what so easily entraps us. First of all, he is our savior. The bondage that is death and hell, the thing that we serve because of our actions, he has broken that. Praise God, he has broken that bondage. We don't have to be held down by those chains any longer. This is what Apollos is sharing. The anointing of Jesus breaks the bonds of death. But it goes so much deeper than that. He also breaks the bonds of all the things we allow to trap us. The bondage of addiction, the bondage of anger, the bondage of division in our own families. And if you don't believe it, it's so simple and so true. We share it with people and it seems almost unfathomable. You mean to tell me that the bondage that I'm under, that the thing that I'm suffering under, the addiction I can't get out from underneath, yes, I believe in Jesus, he freed me from death, but in this life I am bound by this thing. I am bound by my anger, by my frustration. You mean to tell me that same Jesus can free me? The answer is, absolutely. He is the Christ. He is the one that can break the yoke of bondage for each and every one of us. It sounds so simple, and yet it's so true. And I can sit here and tell you passionately because I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've lived through it. He has broken the yoke of bondage, you see. And this is the freedom that we now have in Christ Jesus the anointed one. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you that on a Sunday when we get to celebrate the perfect work that you did on the cross, we get to also celebrate your anointing. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the power that you give by your perfect work to break the yoke of bondage in each and every one of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you have broken the bondage of addiction and division and anger and frustration and loneliness and, and discrimination and being torn apart from people we love. You've broken all these addictions and all of these powers that the enemy wants to convince us that we are held down by and we do not have to be held by them because of the power of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the way that you come into our lives and you change us from the inside out. So as we're going to get ready to remember your perfect work that you did on the cross, we just want to thank you so much for doing what we could not do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. And as Jacob and Michaela begin to play, I want to encourage you guys to just come. Uh, of the cup and the bread the little tab on top has the bread in it uh, it is hard to open so don't become the cussing Christian when you can't get the tab open it'll be okay just go slowly I want to encourage you guys to come and partake and we'll take that all together we all start on the outside the outside looking in this is where grace begins 
We were hungry, we were thirsty, nothing left to give. Oh, the shape that we were in. Just when all hope seemed lost, love opened the door for us. He said, come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be set free. Come to the table. Come meet this motley crew of misfits, these liars and these thieves. There's no one unwelcome. That sin and shame that you brought with you, you can leave it at the door. Let mercy draw you near. So come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be set free. Come to the table. To the thief and to the doubter, to the hero and the coward, to the prisoner and the soldier, to the young and to the older, all who hunger, all who thirst, last and all the first, all the paupers and the princes, who failed you've been forgiven, who dream and all who suffer, all who've loved and lost another, all the chained and all the free, all who follow, all who lead, anyone who's been let down, all the you have been found on who been labeled right or wrong to everyone who hears this song come to the table come join the sinners who have been redeemed take your place beside the Savior sit down and set free come to the table As the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, the church, the same church that we just saw the beginning of, they had managed to get communion quite wrong. And so he addresses it in chapter 11 as he brings them back 
in verse 23, and he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Father God, we thank you, and we praise you so much for the bread, which is broken on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be able to just fully comprehend, if we can, Lord, maybe even just comprehend a little bit your perfect work that you did on the cross. Father, thank you for allowing yourself to be broken on our behalf. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. See, I did all that talking about the bread, and I can't get it. In that same manner, he also took the cup. And after supper, saying, This cup is of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, pray, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, we gladly take this cup, Lord, knowing again the work that you have done, the way that you took our sin upon yourself, making us as pure as snow, as white as wool, through your crimson blood. Father, we thank you so much. We proclaim openly uh, your work that you did upon the cross until the day you come back for us. Lord, thank you so much for the promises you give. Promises like you will come back. Promises that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Promises, Lord, like you are going to work all things to the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose, Lord. And we know because of your perfect work on the cross, because of your blood, that these promises are true and they hold. And so, Father, we will remember and we will proclaim you. In Jesus' name, amen. And now on that night, after they had partaken, they stood and they sang a hymn and they went out together. And so we don't do hymns. But we're going to sing a song and we're going to stand together. Holding on to you, I am. 
If you're planning on sticking around for our uh, greeter meeting at all, we'll be having that downstairs here in just a few minutes. Uh, if you would like uh, prayer at all, if you uh, feel like you've been shackled in some kind of bond and you just want a prayer, an anointing prayer over your life, I would be honored to do that. You don't have to have me in that spot, but you are welcome to come, and I'll be hanging around after service. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week.